When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That felt like, like a spy movie you're, where, where you're, you're close to the world coming to an end. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. We continue Stefan's story where he tells of serving in three armies. We start the episode in the autumn of 1989 where demonstrations are growing against the government in nearby Leipzig and Stefan's unit is on high alert and confined to barracks. It is clear that East Germany is on the cusp of change, however what will be the impact on Stefan and his comrades? He describes these tense days when rumours abounded of military action against the demonstrators, as well as how he heard about the fall of Honecker and the opening of the border. We also hear about his experiences as the NVA transitions after the first free elections in East Germany and momentum builds for reunification. Stefan accepts a place in the new unified German army and we hear about the momentous day when command is handed over to the Bundeswehr and how he has to learn a different way of thinking such as the new doctrine of personal responsibility. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. My name is Mark France and I served in the Royal Air Force from 1982 through to 2007. What I find fascinating about Cold War Conversations are the stories and opinions of those that lived the other side of the Iron Curtain over that period. Keep up the good work and all that you do at Cold War Conversations. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Stefan to our Cold War Conversation. From one of the first day of October, when we were, we were put on high alert, so basically none of the conscri conscripts were able to leave the barracks anymore, and the officers were like, uh, they couldn't leave their 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 hometown anymore, so there was you know tension arising everywhere, and it was was very clear uh, that something was going on. And everybody who went home to visit their family came back with these messages saying, "Have you heard that? And have you heard that?" And then 
Um, on 7th of October, which was probably one of the uh, most critical days, and um, there was clearly something going on with the Monday demonstration. I think they must have been like, you know, in the tens of thousands at this point in time in Leipzig. So the, it was clear something something would happen, at least that, that's what we thought. And uh, we also had some contacts into uh, other barracks uh, near us, uh, which had way more people than, than us. And um, uh, we, we were told by them that actually they had the trucks lined up uh, near the barracks, which would normally they, they would not do, right? They, they would get it out of the garage for uh, for some education or whatever, but not you know on a regular evening or so. And um, they had lined up their their trucks and uh, even handed out the weapons, but without ammunition, which was also kind of strange because normally when you go on on some education trip or so. They would uh, hand you out the weapons and then take the ammunition as, as you know, uh, one big bucket into the truck. And then whatever you did, like, uh, you know, shooting education or so, you would get your, your ammunition, your personal one. But um, at this at this point, at least that's what we were told. I did not see this with my own eyes. Uh, so trucks were lined up. People were still in, like, in their rooms in the barracks. And uh, weapons were handed out, but nothing else happened. And um, that must have been the night when um, I was on, on duty, actually, one of these 24-hour shifts. I was getting a call that um, in one of these uh, situation rooms, a phone was broken. So I had to go there and exchange the phone or try to fix it. So I was going over there. And <laughs> my, my heart, of course, was beating, right? I mean, it was always a strange situation to... Uh, be called into one of these general's offices. Uh, although I have to say, um, you know, it's probably the same nowadays. The higher the rank, the more friendly and intelligent do the people tend to be. So I had no, besides many fears, I had no real negative experiences with them. But again, you know, given the the actual situation of we, we knew what the what the GDR looked like and being called into this into the situation room that, that was a strange thing and um when i came in there it was indeed like sort of <laughs> again like like a spy movie right you you uh, i entered the room and i saw i don't know maybe a 20 or so generals sitting around maps uh, what turned out to be the city of leipzig and they were um, basically moving around what looked like tin soldiers on you know with long sticks uh, and moving them from here to there or so so I did not spend long enough time to actually find out what's what's going on, but I believe from what I saw that they were sort of planning how the army should engage in the city of Leipzig. You know that together with um, the fact that uh, the the trucks were out in the in the neighbor barracks, um, I think there was some planning or at least some game they they or some preparation they were doing. Um, if they would be called to to uh, take the army out into the streets, and um, yeah, so I was there for a couple of minutes. I was I was able to fix the phone and and went out again. But that that was like felt like um, like a spy movie. You're where, where you're you're close to the world coming to an end. Was there any point at which it sounded like you might be called out to assist in putting down these demonstrations or anything like that? So I remember having chatted about this uh, with my, my my comrades. So two of them were friends. I, I, I knew them pretty well. One one had had left in in summer '88. So we we had this discussion among us, and I remember that we came to the conclusion: if anything like that would happen, we would be 
probably the last being called because of you know the role we played in the communication system and maintenance all of that so there were so many more people you know um sadly more educated in whatever you know running weapons or driving cars or whatever than we were and um we weren't easily replaceable of you know of course everybody's replaceable but not you know if you have a choice of of people and i think the nva had like was it like a hundred thousand people or so under weapons or so? It was quite a, quite a lot of people for a small country. So we figured, you know, the, the risk of us being personally involved is probably pretty low at this point in time. Uh, that was more like uh, something I thought about when I consider it, like you know, in, the, in this day in in eighty eight in, in spring when before I signed, I considered, you know, what is it when they they ask you to to go to the border? Uh, what what am I going to do? What am I going to say, or what am I going to do then? Um, but in in '89 in in Leipzig, no, I, I I did not fear that. You maybe you didn't have this conversation, but did you talk with your friends as to if you were asked to shoot at GDR citizens, what you would have done? Yeah, that was discussed uh, not not at this time, um, but before that, long before that, just as a you know general like water cooler type discussion you know what do you think about this what about that and that was also something you were trying to you know have a very private settings for setting for these kind of conversations you know because of the risk of stasi and or even somebody you know regular involved with the with the party who would basically could could cause you trouble for me i think that was also something that that as an answer i, I saw from others maybe i even took from others my sort of naive thinking was okay if i was forced in a situation like that um you know and i knew i was getting in trouble for not shooting i would probably try to shoot like you know and, and not not hit the person that, that i was asked to to shoot or so that was the, i think a common common way of at least in advance trying to deal with a situation like, like that i know from from books and others that you would also get into trouble finally especially when you're at the border and you were sort of accused of uh, actually um, intentionally not not uh, hitting that person but uh, at least until then you know that was my abstract thinking like uh, yeah you know if i'm really forced i would probably try to not hit that person that that was my sort of strategy there as we move into November, wh- when did you hear the news that Honecker had had gone? Can you remember? Yeah, uh, not the date, but I know the situation uh, very well because it must have been a Saturday. Because um, there was this uh, kind of, you know, th- there was this this attempt of the GDR leadership to uh, what they called Vende, right? Uh, uh, there was this famous saying by by uh, the then. Um, the, the new leader Egon Krenz, wir werden die Wende einleiten. We will we will make a change, <laughs> and um, that was that was already laughable at this at this time. They, you know, they trying to to stay in control for them, but um, and and part of that program and it, you know with all this time it feels like what was maybe four weeks or eight weeks. It feels like there was a whole year of things happening. But one of these these things they did was they either 
promoted more or maybe even founded. Maybe they just promoted more uh, like kind of youth um, TV uh, program that had been on and off for, I think, maybe since summer 88 or so. But certainly in, in, in 89, they gave that, um, it was called um, 1199, which turned out to be the, the postcode for where the studios were. And, uh, you know, the, it felt like MTV to us, right? Uh, young people, lots of music and, uh, you know, fresh looks and all of that. And they were actually changing their role uh, through um, October and November 89 and becoming more like questioning things like, you know, Wandlitz or where, um, um, where most of Honecker and others uh, were living and, um one of these programs on a Saturday, I think they, they were on, on Saturday, was actually when I saw that uh, that the wall came down. So I think it was it was not the day. It must have been like two or three days later. So I obviously in that night when this this happened, uh, we we were I think a friend of us were were calling us through the regular military military line. Uh, one of one of us had a friend in, in in I think in Berlin or so, and they were calling us through the open line saying, you know, have you heard this and have you heard that? So it, it was not how I learned to know that the the uh, the war came down, but certainly all of the details like you know uh, what's on TV and and uh, you know seeing the pictures and all of that that must have been through F nine nine six through eleven ninety nine that I saw that. So you you remember hearing about the wall opening? Was that the the next day? You heard about that? It was not very long after. Maybe not in the same night, but maybe the day after. Not very long after. What is the atmosphere in those days after the the wall has opened? At least twofold, maybe even more sort of categories of, of thinking. There, there was, of course, a lot of people who were just, you know, going out saying, now we're free and, you know, the, the world belongs to us and all of that. I was more sort of um, held back uh, about this because I, I I couldn't make up my mind what this really means. Um, you know, I, I was 19 at this time. I didn't know that much about international politics, and uh, I just the only thing that I sort of that that stuck with me during um, during maybe November or or even a little bit before that was there was this idea of you know having a better GDR. That was certainly something that that I found interesting. And I, I wasn't one of these people who immediately thought, okay, now I can go to West Berlin or you know leave the GDR for for West Germany or whatever. That was not um, that was not on my mind. But um, I was I was more held back. And then of course there was the third category. Uh, people in in you know fear and 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 confusion like most of the most of the officers and you know uh, personnel that was that was there for a long time they were just they didn't understand what's going on at all way they were way more confused than i was and uh, i think at this this point at least i didn't meet uh, many people who were very clear on what's going to happen i mean and who could have told right <laughs> so um this was mostly confusion. So does it mean we are also allowed to go to West Berlin or West Germany? Or, you know, there were, were these days when they were trying to still ask you, you would have to get a passport and you have to get stemmed. And it, that qu very quickly stopped because it was, you know, ridiculous. But um, within, within the NVA, I think there was um, very quickly these three 
at least what I perceive, these, these three categories of people, like me being like sort of, you know, very, very held back and trying to, to get, um, trying to understand what's going on. And then there were, were these people who were trying to leave as, as much as, as soon as possible. And then those who just didn't know what's going on. When was the first time you actually crossed into the West? I think that must have been certainly in winter, maybe even 89. But there was one situation when people were, were taking the train going to Bavaria, to Bayreuth and, and Nuremberg. And there was a situation in Leipzig when there was um, some casualties, maybe even some, some people uh, going dead because there were too many people waiting for the train. And that was the moment when my dad actually offered me, you know, if you want to go since you're in Leipzig, but you better come to me, take my car and, uh, you know, take the car going to, to Bayreuth and collect your Begrüßungsgeld and, and all of that, uh, because, you know, they, they feared I would be in a similar situation. So I think it was maybe in November or December, uh, 89. And what, what was your first impression of the West? It smelled like, uh, one of these intershop shops. <laughs> So it smelled of Levi jeans and bottles of Johnny Walker whiskey and chocolate and 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 soap and all of that, right? So there was this um, when you, we were getting parcels from from West Germany, um, there was a certain certain smell to them, and you know, f of course, all of the uh, um, you know everybody was was excited to, to open what's in there, and there was a similar smell when you went to the intershop and um, when we went to Bayreuth to to get there, um, it was incredible how efficient uh, the West Germans were like you know these millions of people collecting uh, 100 Deutschmark each and there was no signs of stress anywhere right they were just handling that uh, and they had buses taking you from the train station to somewhere else where the you would get the money and uh, there were shops springing up here and there selling you things and there was this chocolate and all of that there was just um, there was there was no chaos everything was like very professional and very German really as 1989 closes, GDR still there. The structure of government is still there. But as you move into the early months of 1990, it, it starts falling away at that point. Is it, would that be a correct view? Yeah, I think that's true for both, uh, you know, the NVA as well as the rest of the GDR. Obviously, at this time, uh, I was still, you know, fully engaged in the, like, you know, as, as the sort of conscript uh, with all the contractual obligations. And, but then, of course, you know, we, very quickly, they allowed us to leave every night and uh, even, you know, sleep outside the barracks as long as we, we did our, our job, so to say. And, um, but what you could very closely see is um, that the same sort of confusion and the same sort of people, you know, trying to, to leave as much as, as soon as possible. The same thing was going on in the rest of the GDR as well. So that, that was kind of a similar uh, happening going on. And the other thing that I realized also during this time, I was getting way more interested, obviously, way more interested into what's going on, uh, you know, in terms of politics and, and uh, the outside world and everything. And... Um, like I said before, this idea of, you know, having a better society and, you know, trying something that hasn't been done before in the GER was intriguing to me. And that was the sort of the idea of, of you know, what these people were looking for in, in, in 89. And I, f I found this interesting, but more like I started to think about it when, when you know, I saw, 
I saw that happening and was way more involved in reading about this in in, in the end of '89. But uh, I also started to to uh, you know visit some of these Monday demonstrations. I, it must have been maybe in the end of October. So it was it was surely before the wall came down. But it was certainly not uh, you know like this forbidden situation that you 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 would risk of being in jail for 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 being there or so. That I was not I was not crazy enough for that. But um, so. I visited these Monday demonstrations a couple of times uh, between, uh, yeah, maybe mid mid October, and then I think the last one I vis- uh, I was on was in early February or so, and you could see a change everywhere week. And in the beginning, it was more subtle, and then it turned out to be much more quicker and more like bigger steps were taken. So um, there was a lot you you could see like the um, you know. Um, the the flags were people were holding up and you know all the transparency and everything um, you know with all these these sometimes very thoughtful um, texts they had put on and uh, also what people were shouting and you could see that slightly changing every week so in the beginning it was about uh, you know uh, us being free and the freedom of thought and freedom of expression. And then it turned into freedom of travel. And uh, I think travel was also a very important part uh, in the very beginning. And then suddenly um, I heard, I think it must have been even maybe end, end of November or so, uh, certainly in, in in December, when there were people starting to to ask for German reunification. Uh, I think it must have been, like I said, maybe maybe late November, and you 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 could see that as a regular visitor, right? You you could see that um, it's getting more like uh, before that. It was mostly if you could see a um, a flag of East Germany, it was without the emblem, so they, it was cut out. But then you could see more and more like the regular West German. West German flag coming in and people asking even uh, can't remember if this was a topic in in 89 but certainly in 1990 when they were asking for the day mark and and all of that stuff that happened afterwards and I personally stopped going there in 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 February uh, when when Helmut Kohl was was visiting uh, Leipzig and they had one of these huge um, demonstrations where again like 300,000 people or so and they were seriously handing out bananas to to people coming to to the CDU uh, truck and and that was that was the end for me right uh, the, the, I thought okay now it's 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 laughable what what they do here and it was no longer about freedom it was no longer about uh, ideas it, it, it was just about this stuff. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. 
because you had these groups like Neues Forum mm-hmm. who were looking at sort of like a middle way between the communism of the SED and the capitalism of the exactly. West, but eventually they were subsumed by the huge firepower that parties like the CDU and the SPD um, brought in that completely over overwhelmed them with promises of loads of money and a, a golden future. I mean, did you feel as though you were being occupied, it's probably the wrong word, but being absorbed into West Germany? Did you still feel that you had an East German identity? Did you consider yourself German? Oh, no, that t- took a long time for me to consider myself a German. No, no, at this point, uh, m- maybe even until, I don't know, 91 or so, when it, it was really, that was really my idea that this is now, you know, our Germany and such. That, that took a long time. But in, in early 1990s, certainly it was, uh, it was all about the GDR, at least for me, and having this, you know, what they called the, the third way, um, and you know what you said, like noise forum. I was not involved with with, with these groups, but the idea was it was intriguing to me, right? I, I thought this is an, this is an excellent way. I mean, being nineteen, you know, you're all about doing crazy experiments and all of that. So that that was that was uh, something that was intriguing to me. So it was certainly about um, there. There was a chance for for at least an experiment, maybe even you know something that that would turn out to be successful. But um, it was pretty clear to me that you know with the changing attitude of people uh, every Monday, that um, this was basically this was off the table pretty quickly, right? The, the people people voted with their feet, and um, they were they were cl- clearly preferring like the, the the short-term things or, or whatever long-term could have happened and so it turned turned out to be actually a good idea that um, sort of the professionals <laughs> took over because when when in 19, 1991 um, the there was this this uh, um, thing going on in Moscow when when Yeltsin was was uh, the uh, coup exactly the, uh, yeah yeah uh, then that was another. That was sort of my last fear within within the the army. But yeah, not yet. <laughs> and so when reunification is uh, announced as sort of like a possibility, which I think was March nineteen ninety. Yes. So um, the uh, f- like you know, looking at it from from the NVA perspective, um, I think the first thing that happened uh, that was interesting is that we were sworn in again right so uh when you were starting your your army thing you had to to swear an oath that um you would you know like uh, fight for communism until the end of your life or whatever that was and um um i think the 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 communist party was a big part of that i think it was in march uh 1990 that we were sworn in again um and this time uh, to the constitution of the GDR, which was totally like it, it had existed forever since since the GDR was born, but it didn't play a big role in like everyday life. And now <laughs> there was this um, the ceremony again that uh, we were getting new new symbols on our uniforms. Uh, you know, we no longer had this um, 
uh, hammer. What's that called? Hammer and compasses. Compasses, yeah. Hammer and compass and the wheat sheaf. Exactly, yeah. The, those symbols of of the GDR were gone, so we just had um, uh, we had we had the colors, and that was all. And we were sworn in, in again to the constitution of the GDR. And that's when when I said, you know, that's the second army I served in. So <laughs> that's the um, when things were sort of changing, but um, it was not yet clear, and it was certainly just starting to 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 be seen that maybe there was a reunification. And actually, uh, before we we started here, um, I I reached out to a friend who was with me during this time, and he remembered much better than I did. Uh, and he he said that um, the unification treaty actually uh, that was started to um, to negotiate between the GDR and West Germany that was actually where it was ruled um, you know how things are moving forward for for NVA and all of that. So uh, it took a while until there was a sort of a perspective on who who would continue as what and would there be an you know another NVA or would there be like only Bundeswehr or would there even be a you know reunification there was lots of things being discussed and it, it uh, can't exactly tell when everything was clear but maybe during summer or so but but maybe not before that and what's happening with your role at this point because you were supposed to be signed up to 91 weren't you yes uh, my personal plan had been um, you know, certainly from the very beginning, because there was all still GDR, uh, I had been, uh, like I said, offered these three things uh, that that turned out to be true. And also uh, part of that was that I was able to sign up for my studies already in, in 88. So uh, I basically had the um, registration for starting in, in 1991 uh, at the university in, in, in Chemnitz in my hometown. For me, the question was really: um, Should I just, you know, exit? Which was which was possible then? Um, everybody who was um, who had more than eighteen months in whatever in whatever role were basically free to to leave. For many personal reasons, it, it sounded interesting to me uh, uh, to continue there. And also, I frankly, I just enjoyed that job, right? I mean, I, I had a couple of friends there. Later on, I even had a flat in Leipzig. Well, I just lived like a regular person and it was more like an office job. You enter the barracks in the morning, you do your thing and like at five or six, you go home and, you know, have, have some more fun. So the, the job itself was fun. Uh, I had a, a friends there. So um, there was no real pressure for me to actually having to leave. And uh, job wise, it was actually still the same, right? You know, we, we still had the same phone system. And even when, when it started that, um, uh, the, you could see some some Bundeswehr um, uh, trucks or um, uh, cars, uh, like visiting. Obviously, you know, planning how to hand over things to to Bundeswehr. Even then, I thought um, this this is something that that maybe maybe interesting until the end of my three years. I mean, that must have been really strange to see Bundeswehr vehicles in and around your barracks and and that red beret of Bundeswehr troops could you remember when you first saw the these troops and sort of just thought my goodness the world has turned on its head i would imagine 
Uh, I don't think it was that much of a big deal for me because I never saw West Germany as uh, the enemy, right? So I, I know other people, for them, it was unbearable, right? They they had, I mean, we had rarely seen in, in any of the educations, we had rarely seen pictures of um, of NATO soldiers or so. It, it, uh, at least I did not, uh, maybe also because I wasn't in, involved with a lot of weapon, weapon stuff and such. Maybe those people had more, pictures or whatever they they would look out for but for me i never saw that and it, for me it was more like um it wasn't against the enemy but it was more like yeah you know this this is the reason we need to run these phone lines and <laughs> that that was that so uh, yes it was strange to see uh, bundeswehr cars on uh, in our barracks but it wasn't as earth shattering as as you would think so i mean at this time uh, so many Things were changing anyway. We were, um, you know, getting um, Daymark uh, at the beginning of July in, in 1990. So there were so many things. Uh, I think I found it stranger to see um, uh, Westmark in in our uh, barracks than the actual Bundeswehr cars. What were your commanders telling you about what your position was going to be after reunification? Yeah, so that was uh, again something that I, I had uh, discussed with my friend because I didn't have that much uh, memory about this. Um, but apparently, um, the unification treaty actually ruled that everyone who was uh, serving four or less years uh, would be taken over into the Bundeswehr if they wanted to. Uh, that was the kind of rule. And everybody was going for more would be under very close scrutiny, and I think only very few of these people were uh, being offered to to continue in the Bundeswehr. I know some did, um, but um, n- certainly not the majority. And I think anything from major even upwards was also not, at least not taken over in general. Maybe some individuals, but but not in general. So there was uh, it unfolded. Uh, I think during summer or so that that uh, it was clear uh, that I could stay if I wanted to. There wasn't not a lot of details. I believe you know, we didn't get any information about uh, you know things like money or whatever else. It was more like yeah, you, you you can stay if you like. And the only thing that was pretty clear pretty soon was that our ranks would be cut by by one level, so to say. So. Um, yeah, I think th- I think most people were cut like one one of their ranks because it it was also more similar to you know to, in terms of responsibility of how the Bundeswehr were running things, but that wasn't that much of a deal for me, so uh, that didn't influence my my decision. I think the only really strange thing that was going on was um, so we we all also uh, received new uniforms in before the third of October when the Bundeswehr was was uh, taking over uh, all of the barracks and everything. And uh, so we received new battle dress and, um, you know, the beret and um, uh, new new boots, actually much better boots than we had before. <laughs> Everybody was getting a pocket knife, which is also very funny to, to see that. Uh, and it was also, by the way, this was a also a signal, right? So in... in uh, in the in the NVA, you were always uh, under the impression that nobody's trusting you, at least not, not from the higher ups. Uh, there was always this like I, I talked about the ammunition before, right? It was probably for security reasons that you were only handed out ammunition at the very last moment, even if it was for for educational purposes. But it, 
maybe it was also for the reason that nobody trusted you, right? So that's uh, for sure. And then you get into this Bundeswehr thing, and the very first thing they, they give you is maybe not the biggest knife, but at least something that is you know more than you ever had in, in GDR time. So that was an interesting thing. And what, what was actually funny uh, was that the only things that we were actually asked to continue using from the NVA are our steel helmet. So that was still the NVA one for at least the one year that I served after uh, unification. And also our Kalashnikov rifle. It was, of course, not with us. It was uh, locked away. But uh, everybody had their personal one. And that was the weapon you had to use in case you had to use a weapon. And was there quite a lot of excitement at getting this new uniform and trying it on and working out what it was all about? So there were more practical questions like, you know, how how are you, you know, which knots would you be using for tying your shoes and uh, this kind of stuff. And then I remember there was the, the new commander in chief was was uh, coming coming in on the 2nd of October, the night before unification. And uh, his driver was was basically sleeping in, in our in our place. And so we had a chat with him and that, that was sort of funny and strange at the same time. Um, and he helped us a lot. I think that that night of 2nd October to 3rd October, we learned like a lot of things in the la- very last minute, you know, how, how to wear, wear the beret and, and, and all of these things. And... Um, I don't remember being that much excited particularly. Is It was really more the practical things that were kind of, you know, what we did there. Day before you're parading in East German uniform and then the day after you have the Red Beret and the Bundeswehr exactly. uniform. Wow. And and I- was there a, a taking down of the flag ceremony on that last day? Yes, I think there was a um, like they, they were rolling in the, the, the flag, and, and there was one last uh, you know moment where everybody had to uh, stand in, you know in line and sort of this is this is the end of the GDR, so to say. And I remember that that more like a strange or or maybe even funny situation that wasn't much of a ceremony for me at least because you know everybody knew what was coming but i think the strangest situation had my friend who was actually on 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 watch during that night right so we had in in front of the barracks and he was actually on on duty for that so when he started his uh, his uh, i think it was like 24 hours again so he started that at the end of the day in on the 2nd of october and he started, of course, in his NVA uniform, and then he had his uh, Bundeswehr uniform with him. And in the night, he actually changed clothes. And in the morning, he basically um, was the Bundeswehr, uh, Bundeswehr um, um, yeah, person, so to say. <laughs> um, that must have been much more strange than it was for me, right? This is a one-in-a-kind situation, one-of-a-kind. Incredible, incredible. And at that, sorry, at that flag ceremony when it comes down the the day before is that the last time you sang the east german anthem was the east german anthem sung at that point or or not oh i don't remember that probably not because um things like that already changed like when i said you know in in march when the the the, that thing in between that second army uh, time began um, all these things were toned down a lot, right? What, what used to be a very important thing, and everybody has to protect the flag under all uh, under all circumstances, all of that that stuff. 
that was not a topic anymore. That was never discussed. So um, I don't think we 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 did any singing or so. Maybe somebody was was speaking something or so, but it it was not a not a big moment. Because I've I've seen film on YouTube, and it might have been more hardcore units of the uh, NVA who had that final parade with the flag and it was quite a, a big deal. And uh, I think the anthem was sung on that. But, I, yeah, I'll have to have a look at that that footage again. I mean, were were there some people who were upset on that day? I don't think so, no. They'd all gone by that point, I guess. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think uh, uh, on the 2nd of October, you would only still have people left who would basically stay on for for the new for the new Bundeswehr? Right, everybody else was had already left, and um, either you know some people um, went on pension, and uh, you obviously you also had some very sad stories. Uh, I think one of the the high officers that we had, who was a sharp person and you know very correct, and 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 was there for a long time, like, you know, 30 years or so. And he, he ended up as a security guard, uh, in a shopping center, you know, like 12 months later or so, somebody met him there. And, and, um, for them, of course, it's, it was like much harder than it was for me, you know, being 19 and, um, at the start of something exciting, something new. Cause their whole world had just turned over and. They no longer had that respect they used to have in society, and also belief, right? I mean, the, I, I met a few people. Actually, surprisingly few. Uh, you would, you would, you, you would have thought that you know uh, there were at least the people in the party would have, would be firm believers in the ideas of socialism and everything. And when you get get to know these people, I rarely met may, maybe not even ten people I met who were really believing in in the idea of communism and everything, and who really personally were disappointed that now this is an end or so. But but most people I, I knew were either relaxed or even even excited about about the future that's coming. But th- this may have been due to the fact that, like I said in the beginning, our battalion was mostly staffed with very young. Uh, you know, engineering-focused uh, people who were who were there. They, everybody knew we were here for three years, and then maybe twenty percent were officers. Or so we hadn't didn't have much close contact with them. So um, that didn't play a role for for me, at least. Once uh, you're then part of the Bundeswehr, is that when your new training in their ethos and this inner Führung quality this inner leadership or this um policy of personal responsibility starts to get trained yes uh, indeed that was that was pretty soon after uh, so we, we we had a new commander and uh, a new uh, uh, deputy from 3rd of october basically right so so we uh, on 2nd of october there was this like final uh, ceremony and on 3rd of october the, the new guy came in and uh, you know hello and that's me, and uh, let's talk, and all of that. Way more human than um, the GDR leaders were behaving, at least in the ranks we we were involved with. And um, uh, also, I mean, a Bavarian accent, right? That's another thing that was really strange for for me, at least, uh, to hear uh, uh, from from these people. And very quickly, it turned out that that humanity is is something that is uh, held very highly in, in the Bundeswehr, at least what you know. 
obviously ex experiences are different and uh, there's probably a lot of people having bad experience in the, in the Bundeswehr but for me having been uh, exposed to what we you know we we, we kept on joking in the GDR times we we get uh, irradiation of red light all the time right so like this um indoctrination of of uh, communist idea and you know we're here to save the world and all of the nobody believed in that at least, at least i did not so it was just boring stuff you had to sit through and then basically in the same room like a year later somebody else was sitting there and again let's talk about the constitution and you know what are your responsibilities as a soldier in uh, under the constitution of of uh, Bundesrepublik Deutschland and uh, that was strange in the beginning to to get this kind of you know in a similar setting to get also to talk about this uh, similar uh, things but it became pretty pretty soon it became clear that um there's much more reality in what's being discussed here and uh, it was also way more practical right you know i think pretty soon we discussed like what are situations when you actually asked to uh, to not follow orders, right? When when you are not allowed to follow orders, uh, stuff like that, which would never been have possible to even touch that topic in the GDR. There was uh, uh, an order was was like you know always an order. There was no way to to even think about discussing that. And so yeah, that that was pretty clear pretty soon that um, they uh, at least. Personally, I'm not sure if that was a like a strategic mission that the Bundeswehr was 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 trying to drive in uh, with the uh, with the rest of the NBA that stayed. But talking about the constitution and what it means to be a soldier and like you said, innere Führung, all these principles, that was to me looking back uh, a very good idea because. Um, while the contrast to the GDR was funny in the beginning, it was also helpful lo looking back to to see immediately, you know, after the the reunification, okay, this is what is different, right? And that uh, led to resolve a lot of the chaos and, and and uncertainty, and you you got to see, okay, this is at least what's on paper and all of the like people how people acted and what you were being asked uh, to do and such. It was there was a lot of a lot more integrity between uh, the constitution and the the laws and everything and everyday life. That was that was that was a pretty good experience for me. I think you know when we were chatting before we we recorded this, you you mentioned to me that you know you had one to ones with your commander, which would have been unheard of in the NBA. Yeah. yeah sort of being being treated as as an as an equal human right and, and you 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 could talk to them and, and really feel like asking asking everything i had much more trust in doing that with with uh with the bundeswehr commander than i would have had with the the nba commander um maybe also because of the you know almost three years that i had served until you know and then i mean these were formative years for me in the age between 18 and, and 21 there's a lot of development that you make personally so maybe that was also an aspect that played a role here but of course you know also the personality of people but um that was certainly a, a, a contrast and were you trained on completely new equipment at that point or what what was going on as far as your role i don't think my my sort of day job ever changed that much during these three years because um um the bundeswehr was 
taking over most of the communication lines, at least at this point. I, I later visited that, that place again. I still had some friends there, and they showed me the new thing. What what used to be like three rooms full of equipment was now like you know one corner of an office. And uh, of course, that <laughs> that was funny to see, which mean, meant you know way less maintenance and you know all sorts of other things. But I think. Uh, at least until I left, which was in in August '91, at least until then, most of the uh, of that technology, like communication lines and all of that, stayed mostly the same. Obviously, the ones um, um, going into into Moscow were used less. <laughs> there were new ones going to to Bonn and uh, Berlin, but um, that part stayed mostly the same. Because the Soviet army was still in. East Germany at, at that point, but starting to pack up and leave. That's true. And to be honest, we didn't have a lot of uh, connection with them, right? I mean, we had, obviously, we knew where, since I, I was in the open part of the battalion, we um, communicated a lot with Deutsche Post. Uh, so there, there were open lines and we always had this, like, the real names of the cities these lines were going to. And that was something that uh, was not used in the normal GDR, uh, NVA uh, communication. There was always like these these um, secret names of things. And you were not supposed to to say like, you know, this is in Delitzsch and this is in Dresden. You you would have to have to say that like the, the secret name of that. So when there was communication with the Russians, it was probably more in the, uh, in the encrypted section. And I didn't get to see that much. And that was, of course, all torn down. In like very early 1990, when they uh, the equipment I think was mostly Russian, and the Russians took that uh, took that with them very early on, just to make sure it's not get, getting into the hands of, of uh, uh, NATO. What's happening with your parents at this point? Have they still got their jobs, or are they seeing you know redundancies or anything like that? So my my parents got divorced uh, shortly before uh, the war came down. So uh, uh, that was a lot of change for them anyway, for both of them, right? So um, that that's intermixed with whatever happens uh, during this time. But my my dad actually, um, I think it was even in in early 1990, he changed uh, his his jobs uh, again in the the institution where he was working um they were looking for basically uh new leaders that have do not have any party uh, history and you know certainly not any stasi um connections and so he was he was actually promoted pretty quickly within that institution and because he basically was like free of any any problems there and um, so he went on uh, quickly after that. I think in 1991 or so, he moved into the uh, Ministry of Education in, in Dresden. And my mom actually was involved with um, one of the daughter companies of Treuhand after the, the war came down. She quickly changed there. So basically all of the buildings and everything that had to be returned to their previous owners, uh, that couldn't be done from from one day to the other, so there was some continuation, and but uh, any rent collected, any any you know money that was flowing or so had to be preserved for that moment when you give it back to the like the previous owner, and she was basically doing the calculations for that kind of stuff. So my parents both actually had a had a good uneventful way of of, of finding their way around there as well. And and what about your career coming out of? Well, you've been through the NVA, you've been in this interim army, and now you're Bundeswehr. The qualifications that you thought were going to be useful 
are they worth anything in the new Germany? <laughs> uh, certainly not the practical stuff, right? I mean, uh, the the old uh, phone systems from nineteen sixteen uh, probably couldn't. Maybe they could. You could use them in a museum or so. You know, obviously, like with all of this, like the the personal relations and and the experiences I had, and looking back uh, into this. At the time, the friendship still stays. Like I said, I still have two friends I'm meeting frequently uh, from that time. But apart from that, my the other plan worked worked well as as I had thought. Right. So in 1991, I started to to do my A levels because uh, I was doing this apprenticeship. I didn't have uh, the right to study, so I was doing one year of um, preparation to get my A levels, and then started to study in 1992. And graduated from from Hochschule Mittweida, which is a small small town near Chemnitz, in uh, 1996. Yeah, almost as planned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a small matter of a country disappearing in the means. Yeah, <laughs> but, indeed. Uh, I mean, how did you feel that last day in in the Bundeswehr? Did you feel sad that you were leaving that life, or were you just looking forward? So for me, it was always sort of that day was three years in the making, right? So I, I had, since I had planned to, to do it that way, it was always clear that there would be an end in, uh, to, to that situation in, by, by August, uh, 91. And, um, as I indicated earlier, there was one moment of, you know, holding your breath in, in, in summer, uh, 1991. Um, so um, from that moment that Helmut Kohl was uh, was in Leipzig in uh, early 1990, I was sort of disgusted, right? Uh, how, how those people treated us and how uh, some of my fellow uh, TDR citizens are actually behaving and you know what they're looking for and all of that. So I, I wasn't too fond of Helmut Kohl uh, becoming the you know the Chancellor of the Unification and all of that. But then when uh, when that coup was was going on in Moscow. And, um, you know, it was on a table that the military is taking over and all of that. Um, that was uh, during, like, literally my last days in, in the Bundeswehr. And I was actually, for the first time, I was thinking, thank God that this unification is all completed. And, you know, now it's clear that there's there's one Germany. Before that, I was thinking, you know, maybe we should have taken things more slowly and it would have been easier for the people moving over and maybe more jobs could have been kept and all of that. Politically, I think um, it was the right move, and I didn't just didn't see that before. That uh, he he always said, like you know, the historic hour of you know if it's possible and all of that. But indeed, I have to say, after all these years, there was this danger that um, uh, if the military would have taken over and they were still deep in the GDR in ninety one, uh, they could have closed the border, right? They could have uh, re-established GDR very quickly. And everything would have been would have come to an end. So, I think that that moment was, um, and it actually resolved also during August uh, ninety one. So when I left Leipzig, um, uh, it, everything was good again. <laughs> of course, you know you're leaving friends and all of that. That that was the sad part. But uh, looking forward and you know knowing that my studies are going to be starting, all of that, um, I was actually I was looking forward to to do the next thing. So that that was not sad at all. Looking back at your time in the NVA, was there anything that you think that the NVA did better than the Bundeswehr? Hmm. So um, 
one of the major differences I saw, I mean, obviously, you know, when you say what they did better is, you know, better from what perspective, right? I mean, obviously, they were not treating people better. And <laughs> so um, lots of stuff. But I think if you look at it from a military perspective, the, the organization of uh, the NBA was much more strict and much more um, focused on uh, having a quick reaction. So the, the, the fear was always that um, West Germany would, you know, start the tanks and roll over East Germany in whatever, three days or so, right? So everything was focused on being on alert and being able to, to being ready to react within N hours or N days or so. And, you know, within two weeks, they would have mobilized like another two million people. And within six hours, the rockets would be ready, whatever it was. And... um I think this part, uh, uh, quick reaction and having people uh, sort of always be ready to to react, that was something that the GDR did much more strict. Of course, at the, you know also as an, an at an enormous cost. Um, so they they built houses. I think the Bundeswehr does that, did that as well. Built housing close to the barracks so that the officers are living nearby. All of the marriages that were going wrong of the officers because they they were moving every two years to a new place and their wives could not find friends and and all all that stuff is probably the sad prices people had to pay for for this kind of situation. But if you look at this just solely from this angle, that's probably something that uh, the GDR and the NBA did more more strict and maybe more efficiently. I don't know. I mean, when I talk to the bricksmiths guys the the military liaison mission guys you know one of the things they have always said is they thought the nva was far more professional than the soviet army and t- certainly in, t- in in readiness is one of the things they have talked about that the readiness levels were much um higher and they were far more difficult to get information from as well hmm. whereas uh, a soviet might be uh, much more easily bribed. I could see that very well. The the, the the Russians were just poor people, right? I mean, the the the, the few moments I had to see how they lived and all of that, um, th- this was unbelievable, unbelievably bad. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history
Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.